Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast. I'm Belinda Coombs, Rebecca's sister and podcast producer. Unfortunately, today, Rebecca has lost her voice and can't speak, so I'm filling in for her to introduce the show to you. On today's show, we're joined once again by Dr. Melanie Keller to talk all about methane-dominant SIBO. They talk through the different symptoms and treatments for methane-dominant SIBO, as well as supportive practices for chronic constipation and gut health testing. Dr. Melanie Keller, ND, is National University of Natural Medicine alumna and specialises in the treatment of SIBO and associated conditions, SIBOsolution.com. She participated in the development of the SIBO Symposium, the SIBO Centre at National University of Natural Medicine and co-authored the Feb and March 2014 Townsend Letter article. The Importance and Relevance of IBS in the Female Patient. Dr. Keller is a current board member at the Gastro ANP, a mastermind contributor with Seeking Health Education Institute, and has a private practice based in Los Angeles, California. Her evidence-based approach addresses epigenetic influences from microbial dysbiosis, malabsorption and environmental toxins. I hope you enjoy the show. Here's Rebecca with Dr. Melanie Keller. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Dr. Melanie Keller. It's wonderful to welcome you back once again. We uh, we seem to really enjoy doing this with each other. Yes, every time you're in LA, let's. <laughs> I know, I love it. It's a it's a good excuse to be back in LA. Yeah. So we're we're having a really fun podcast interview tonight because we're doing it live and uh, and we have a guest with us, which is which is wonderful. We've got Jenna here, and she's watching us do the recording. Um, so we're here in LA and we're talking about methane dominant SIBO and something that I find myself with my SIBO coaching program is my clients who are coming through a generally methane dominant SIBO or they have hydrogen and very high levels of methane and it is really perplexing to often them and their practitioners around what they can do. I'd love to talk to you about what your experience is with your SIBO clients and patients around methane dominant and how you approach treating someone that's got methane dominant SIBO. 
So I'd like to go through a little bit of maybe a progression of what I've seen. I feel like that will be helpful so that those are listening um, can think of the stages or the steps that I'm talking about in case they're at stage one. Some people, they we just were talking, I didn't hear about this or I didn't know that there was a test available. And so just please take that with a grain of potassium that I might be saying something that's really complicated for somebody who's been around the block three years, et cetera, et cetera, and this might be great for you, but it might be like, what are you talking about to the newbie? So I just would start off with saying, <clears throat> as most people know, the combination of two pro, or excuse me, antibiotics, whoa, very much, excuse me, antibiotics. And what I find interesting in terms of when you look at those antibiotics, when we're talking about rifaximin staying in the small intestine, or at least it's about pH, and the fact that it's antimicrobial in the small intestine, but it's eubiotic, meaning it's populating lactobacillus and bifidobacteria in the large intestine. That's its job. And I think a lot of people forget that because it has a potential to C. difficile. We always, you know, have to think about or talk about or know that there is this worst case scenario, quote unquote, but that that isn't very common. It wouldn't be approved the way that it's been approved. It wouldn't have gone through this target three study, et cetera, and been approved for I IBSD more specifically. So just to kind of maybe table some of the concerns that I hear from people who are like, oh, but I've taken rifaximin X amount of times, and that quote doesn't work for me anymore, or I've become resistant. And then you'll understand where I'm going to with this as in terms of the pattern that I see with methane, because it's also, if you would agree, I see methane not only just at one point in their breath test, it's throughout, it's often at baseline, and it's often maybe higher at the beginning than the end. And so that's where I'm also then going to kind of focus on the tube and getting through, as we've discussed fairly thoroughly nicely, the oral component of that tube in a previous podcast, but also the other um, chamber or the size of our fist, the good old stomach where the migrating motor complex starts. <clears throat> and so I just like to then emphasize anything we're putting in the stomach, how is that being broken down and or utilized? So that's drugs and herbs, just to put that in perspective. So oftentimes people, perhaps their, their um, physician, gastroenterologist, whoever, might not be giving them the second antibiotic. And so then we can talk about the second antibiotic being neomycin sulfate. And oftentimes people hear sulfate or they see that on the label and also has a black box warning that if they've had a sulfa allergy that they then can't take that drug. And I actually said that to a patient whose husband was a pharmacist who came back to me and said, no, I'm very comfortable with my wife taking this. It's a sulfate. It's not a sulfa drug. She had had a reaction to sulfa. And so that was nice because, again, I got we want the approvals from everyone and charting properly. But, again, she actually had been hesitant to try the rifaximin and neomycin, and that worked beautifully for her, not right off the bat, what I was able to do was look at her gas levels and say, look, you have X amount of methane. Let's pick 35 just to have a number, okay? And I would say, I know with nice conversations with Dr. Pimentel and Dr. Rizai, 
even though they just had a consensus that a big group of international people had to come to terms, you know, to a consensus. But we know when we're talking about the individual, there might be lower levels that we need to get to as far as how somebody is responding and or, in my opinion, is improved, i.e. the methane is really reduced, hence they're not on blank amount of magnesium. They're not still taking Miralax. These are things that, you see what I'm saying? I'm also getting to a, your methane levels are low and you're not facilitating a bowel movement. That to me is results. <clears throat> so given those results as my benchmark, I then would take that 35 and say, look, on average, when the treatment is working effectively, you can test and check and peak as much as you want. However, this is how many years of experience and patterns that I typically see a reduction of 15 parts per million every two weeks per the treatment of either the two antibiotics. And yes, I focused on neomycin sulfate and rifaximin for now, and I will get to the alternatives as well. And or at that time, I was very focused on herbals, seeing lots of herbals being used, so many combinations of herbals that I just feel like it's literally a crapshoot. How about it? Seven. <laughs> I don't know. Or at least I wasn't seeing any patterns. And I definitely didn't see any diets with this and that given any kind of specifics. It was so individual. So that's why I honed in on and two herbals just so happened, folks. This was not by way of me being specific or trying to have the most expensive anything. Cause that's by far what I would ever want to do. However, it just kept working every time consistently better than, and this is the um, allicin, the chemical constituent in um, garlic, not whole garlic. I will never use that. I try not to even say the G word. <clears throat> it's the A word all the way. And, um, and it's a certain percentage of this allicin that it's standardized to, folks. Not 1%, not 10%, it's 100%. And um, have had wonderful conversations with the owner and developer in the UK. And we're actually even talking about developing some research and me being more involved in the sales of, the, of this to actually also educate people and really show how there is this, yes, it's effective against these particular microbes, and yes, we are getting somewhere. And sometimes, as some of you listeners also need to hear, you need to stop taking certain things because we also don't want to just keep either masking something and or we don't want to keep running in the hamster wheel. This is a concern I have from what I see on some of the online forums where people are self-medicating because they can, they can buy Absolutely. herbs online and they're reading on forums that it has, something has worked for somebody and then they go and buy it themselves. And I think that that's really dangerous. I think that we need to be very mindful of what we're treating our microbiome with whether we're trying to kill things or replenish things, and we should be doing it with people that know what they're doing. And I, am, you know, I'm a lay person. I'm not medically trained, and I have always sought the services of an expert in a field where I feel that I need that support. And uh, and my microbiome is an area where I want somebody that knows more about it than me working with me to to 
develop a protocol. So it's interesting you talk about rifaximum and neomycin as your two antibiotics that you work with and that Allison has had a good success rate for um, methane-dominant CBOAs. Is there any, are there any other herbs that you're finding in combination with It's Allison? definitely the Allison with the neem plus, and I will be specific. I've worked with a lot of people international. I've tried different neem, even from India. I mean, again, you name it, you name the quality, the source, the etc. I've, I've seen, you know, clinically. And again, I've landed on this proprietary blend from Ayush Herbs. Okay. I cannot explain why. It's a Indian secret. <laughs> and and um, so, but that's just where, and I will say that the Allison in combination with Rifaximin has also worked very well. Okay, so again, somebody has a react, a quote unquote reaction to neomycin. And of course, we know metronidazole or flagyl can be an alternative as well. And that, again, has been used for a year, you know, it's been around for a really long time. And I just find it interesting because it also, it's not strictly just an antibiotic, right? <clears throat> so there's a component there that I then dabble in this whole, I'll use the that H. pylori theory where I'm like, okay, well, what else could be overgrown in the stomach, let's say, for example. And that's where I was leading to with the elevations of methane being there. And so, and the migrating motor complex beginning in the stomach and digestion beginning in the mouth. So as you look at your gas levels or look at your test results, see how that's even correlating. Now, this is something that people also are going to be a little shocked about. And yes, hang on, folks. But like they'll be on this high fat, high protein, low carbohydrate diet. And I believe, this is just my theory, and I have spoke with other colleagues who feel the same, that the, this diet is feeding methane. And I'm really interested in this point because I, I know that we briefly touched on it on, on our podcast uh, where we talked about your four steps to treating SIBO. And, um, and I had, I've had people write to me and say, can you, can you tell me more about what Dr. Keller means by that? You were able to articulate or explain how or why you believe that the fat is feeding the methanogens. Well, I presented this actually at the SIBO symposium. I had this epiphany and it's not going to be easy to explain okay so if we're connecting the dots this is a little doctor talk i'm gonna say here okay and this okay. is totally <laughs> dr keller's theory nobody else is you know <laughs> this is completely out of my own head um however it is about and i presented this again at the university of virginia commonwealth they show how this diet high in fat and high in protein can feed, they even identified the species, I'm not gonna get into it, okay, so I'm just saying in general, they have identified that that is feeding this species that is then changing the form of cortisol in the human body. It is shifting glutocorticosteroid in our body and it is shift then changing the structure of cortisol. And those people who, again, are working with practitioners where their adrenals are in a certain situation or it's just inflammation, these things are chronic. So cortisol is definitively involved. 
But not only is cortisol involved, cortisol is involved then in other androgens. So again, as we're connecting the dots, other hormones, androgens, I'm referring to testosterone, estrogen. And so by them making these changes in cortisol, they can also then, it's like this neighbor thing or scratch a neighbor. I don't know what's going on, but it will affect the other microbes, this shift in cortisol. And then the other microbes can create this other cocktail of androgens. Some of them are releasing excess estrogen, some excess testosterone. They're amazed at it, but they're following it in men and prostate and colon cancer. And so they're definitively able to say, this is happening, we just don't know. And they show it with a high fat and a high protein diet. And so that association with how I've been able to successfully treat methane dominant cases, and even under weight methane dominant cases, cachexic, like sickly on that malnourished, nobody's hearing me, but they'll say, oh, you're malnourished. And they say, yes, please fix me. That was my patient today. Um, and, and that's exactly how we have to go about refeeding the human yet not feeding the bacteria too. It's so interesting because those of us on SIBO diets are eating predominantly a higher fat, higher protein diet. We've stripped out the carbohydrates generally and we're being quite limited with fruits and vegetables and fibrous foods. And, and uh, it's, it's very interesting to think that perhaps this higher fat intake might be contributing to the problem. So if we think about when you're treating your patients and, and food, what do you generally do with a patient's food then? <laughs> I know my listeners will be going, well, then what do I do? What do I eat? I, I um, say have a free-for-all. I throw all everything to the, I'd say, imagine a big stack of papers and just throw them up into the air and have fun with letting them fly all over the place and not care because... If you can't eat the way that you would like to eat, how can I get you to that place where you would like to eat? People never get there. What a bummer. Do you want to keep doing a treatment where you can't even, I mean, even if it's a little, hey, I could have a rice cracker today. Hallelujah. Let's celebrate instead of restrict. And even if that food creates an immediate reaction and, and someone says, oh, Dr. Keller, I'm so bloated today because I went and ate, um, you know, a potato. I cooked a potato because I was craving it. Um, how do you approach that when they're like, oh, I'm so in so much pain and bloated and I look pregnant and I'm depressed because of that? Well, my folks now, if they know why and they understand, they understand their risk factors, they know what's going on with them. And I've been there. It's not fun. I don't feel sexy when the belly's hanging out and you're going, are you serious? Nobody would believe me, but you don't really want to take a photo to show it to somebody that, yeah, yes. <laughs> that just, you have to find the humor. Because every time it even happens to me, and even I'll stop, or I know my I know my situation, and I will test it. I love Kate Scarlatta mentioned this at the um, SIBO symposium. She says I'm like a turtle. I'll kind of creep out there with my head a little bit, and, and just kind of. And sometimes I pull back in to my shell. But I know myself, and I know what I can do, and I know how I can have my life be balanced. I know when I can have a drink, and when I no, but it's my choice. My SIBO is not running me. 
Mm. And interestingly, um, that I was in my SIBO coaching program recently and uh, Dr. Alison Seebecker had come on to, to talk to us about SIBO diets. And you would think that, you know, being the creator of the SIBO specific food guide that she would be saying, you know, you must follow this food guide strictly. But she said, use every SIBO food guide ever created as a guide and if you can eat a food that's not on that f- on that list and it works for you, go and eat that food. Like, hallelujah, celebrate that food because it's not causing a reaction, go for it. Um, so it's, it's really interesting and I think there's such fear around our food and I see this with my own clients and I see it with all the people that contact me every week who are so restricted and they're so terrified, terrified of bringing in a new food because they're terrified it will bring the SIBO back. So let's talk about that for a moment. Can food, can one cheat, as people call it to me, or describe it to me, can that bring your SIBO right back if you've been really, really, this is what people say, I've been so good for, for three months and then I fell off the wagon and I went and had a burger and fries. Yeah, that's I why people say, I take back. people off the wagon, I'll drag them behind the wagon and say, how's it going? Hang on. <laughs> and you're going to pull yourself back up onto the wagon and then you're going to get the reins. So, th- so one meal will not bring back SIBO? No. But I'm saying that in the case of, again, know your SIBO. Know why you have it. Somebody I was talking, you know, and they have X amount of surgeries and they have adhesions and they have a prolapse of their... who Different situation, folks, okay? But yes... That's just what I have to touch on. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, that's a whole nother topic just around understanding the underlying cause of your SIBO. And it can often be very difficult for people to really get to the bottom of it. Um, just going back into the whole methane versus hydrogen um, thing, when someone is, when you would sort of feel that somebody has cleared their methane dominant SIBO, are they seeing completely flatline figures? What what is what is a res- test result sort of goal for somebody? Oh, okay, excellent. So that gets me back to like I said with the consensus, and the consensus is now at like ten parts per million. But about two years ago, at least, we were talking about three parts per million. And again, everybody has to take this with the uh, what is your situation and. People will focus on, and I understand how Mark, Dr. Pimentel used this example, and it's a great example as far as maybe we, the methane slowed things down to have better absorption of food as far as the African connection to seeing some methane is quote-unquote normal there. And that actually, in my opinion, leads me more to epigenetics, very specifically about epigenetics, which is what I love and can really make people's heads spin. But (laughs) um, that's the other piece as far as like maybe why when you feel that whack-a-mole, gosh, I got, oh, the methane's back up. Oh, but if you don't understand those patterns either, what I've seen is that people will, again, they'll mask it with more magnesium. So I think I mentioned that. I mean, I'm a you're going to cross this line. And it was always like, well, if you got to cross the line to 75% or more improvement before you even went on a prokinetic agent. And at that point, it was three or less of methane, and they're not facilitating a bowel movement. No magnesium, no Miralax. That was at least my goal. And I really wanted them to be able to add carbohydrates back in. 
because I could show that their hydrogen would be less than five, which is normal physiology should be less than five in the small intestine. They could eat carbohydrates and repopulate their large intestine, 50, 70 parts per million of hydrogen, and they could completely reduce, maybe one, maybe, maybe a three would pop up somewhere, or zeros, sure. And I've seen zeros where people feel fabulous, or one or three, and they don't, they're like, no, I, I'm completely off all of my facilitation of a bowel movement. Then I've had somebody with flatline zeros who haven't had a bowel movement for three days. And that's where I know the inside scoop, let's say, where Dr. Pimentel says, I believe we need to address, look at, or potentially measure methane and two parts per billion. So if someone has a, quote, flat line, and they may or may not, as I know, have a cross-competition with hydrogen sulfide, as we all know, and so they'll have constipation. It's usually more this alternating picture, right? So that's the other piece, is that are you just dealing with methane, or are you dealing with methane and hydrogen sulfide? And that's the tricky thing at the moment because there isn't a definitive test for there is no test for sulfide. Not yet, but it's Not yet. it's clinical. I picked yeah, you can pick it up and I get what we do is we go, Oh no, it's diarrhea or or constipated folks go, Yay, I'll take it. But it's not fun the hydrogen sulfide diarrhea is not hydrogen release diarrhea. I'll put it that way, okay? This is not fun, burning, acrid, you know, kind of that residual burn at the anus type of a feeling. And yet that can, I see that transient as we're treating methane and I go, oh, cool, we got the hydrogen sulfide. Let's get those out of the way. Instead of going, oh no, I got to treat something else. It's like, nope, that's part of the, that's part of the scenery here. Mm. Something that I get asked um, a bit is um, with Dr. Seebecker um, saying in her practice, from what she sees clinically, that two-thirds of SIBO people are chronic, with one-third being able to treat successfully quite quickly. Um, and a question I get asked quite a bit is, is that two-third population methane-dominant SIBO people, or is it a combination? And I'm interested to know whether you see... Um, whether there is that kind of correlation with your patients, whether you whether two thirds are chronic, or whether you have a kind of a different um, uh, result or figure with your population of of patients. Well, I mean, I would also then point out that I believe we also see a unique population and or uh, you see what I'm saying of the population because I, I don't know that Dr. Pimentel would I, and I'm just saying it's just making me question of the chronic people or the people who have found uh, you know is that then they're chronic because of other reasons is what I'm saying because I also think we don't hear much from the people that get better yeah, I'm one of the loud ones. <laughs> I talk a lot. Yeah, well, it's it very is, nice, but right? How but many of true. them are you that really go, got this handled? Hallelujah. Okay. Yeah, and admittedly, uh, a lot of um, doctors like Dr. Seebecker are 
specialising in the more chronic, difficult cases because these people have gone to other physicians and they haven't perhaps got the results that they wanted and they go further up the chain to somebody that specialises in this. Well, exactly. Or originally, right, she was that underground, right? Didn't she even, she started with underground and Steve and like, it's like she was that person that's like, I hear, I know, I've read this, I want to say something. And so that's part of how people find, right, the law of attraction. And then it's the, oh, yeah, you even believe me. You're saying the word, the acronym. And then now, I mean, just even the short amount of time of people, even their gastro or their doctor going, oh, okay, yeah, fine. Sure, I'll give you some antibiotics for that. I mean, Mm. I'm being facetious, but it's huge, the big change that has happened. So of the people who are now getting help, right, from even their health food store clerk maybe probiotics do work for you the ones that are finding us slash her i would just kind of maybe comment and say that for anybody who goes oh no i'm the chronic two-thirds it's never going to be me or you have overly high hopes that you're going to be the one third and this next elemental formula is going to do it for you and i think that can be a real challenge i have a client who's um just recently Um, gone through part of my SIBO coaching program and in the coaching program I have a lot of people that are um, what would they would self-diagnose themselves as a chronic the Mm. chronic two-thirds these people have been unwell for many many years it's interesting to me though that um, when I hear their stories and I they tell me they share with me the treatment or lack thereof or partial treatment that they've had because they've been treated by a physician who knows a little bit but isn't a specialist in this area and has put them on some treatments that can be effective but then has put them on completely interesting, perhaps slightly random treatments mm-hmm. that aren't known to be what would be classically considered as a SIBO treatment. And, and I wonder whether um, because of this they have become chronic because perhaps their treatment isn't correct for their condition and they've come to me in often a lot of frustration because they're unwell and so it really makes me then think well how chronic are we really could if if everybody had the right treatment could we be getting rid of this condition and rebalancing the gut a lot quicker than what we're seeing and I can't answer that question because there isn't a perfect world out there with perfect treatment. <laughs> but it's, it is very interesting. Um, and, and what I'm seeing with these people is that they are methane-dominant um, SIBO. Which, very, if I may, because that was very profound. I was jumping up and down in my seat because I agree with you. And it, that's what I say when I was going back to that 15 parts per million reduction. I was going to say when you're on the right treatment so that's the reason why we go and we do take a peek but these are you know and so but I just don't two weeks retest two weeks retest per se okay again where's somebody starting off with um and so that's one thing that I wanted to comment on and so I also will give something two weeks if I'm not seeing that reduction or they're not feeling better hmm maybe we need to switch it up and it's not add another herb it's usually take something away and add in some food. Um, that's just a comment I'd like to make. And then what I have found, and I'm just at least right now in this time frame, is that 
I am finding this when you say that people are coming to me with chronic conditions or they've had this a really long time. So SIBO is not the only thing we're talking about here, folks. And that's the other component is they go to all these other specialists. My patient today has seven specialists. If I could have interjected in the first 60 minutes, I would have said, I know what's going on here. This person had to tell me their story. And I, you know, they just needed to be heard of the story. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, the answer is going to be kind of more, a little more simple. We actually need to back it up. I want you to come off of these things so that when you come off of them, it's not to tumble down. It's to when you put it back in, you definitively, oh, yep, yep, that is helping, that is putting, keeping things together type of a thing too. And um, by way of us taking things away and looking at how things should function, i.e. chewing and et cetera down the tube, then that can be a major discovery that then you go and then that treatment can be more successful. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, do you feel completely overwhelmed when it comes to figuring out what you can eat that's suitable for a SIBO diet? I know that I felt so overwhelmed at the start of my SIBO journey. And let's be honest, eating for SIBO can be challenging. It can downright suck at points. You've already got so much going on. You've got your treatments, you're trying to remember to take all your medications and your supplements. And not to mention all of the daily symptoms that you have to experience, the pain, the bloating, the constipation or diarrhea or both, and the brain fog and exhaustion. The list just goes on. Having someone else take that hassle away from you for planning your food can make your day just that little bit easier. And this is where I've come to your rescue. I've developed SIBO meal plans just for you. They take all of the stress away from planning your SIBO daily food intake. They're based on the SIBO biphasic diet by Dr. Narala Jacoby, and each meal plan is just for the specific phase it relates to. So you may be on phase one restricted or phase one semi-restricted or phase two reduce and repair, and there is a meal plan just for you. We've got 14 days of SIBO-friendly meals and recipes included. There's weekly shopping lists. There's handy hints and tips to make cooking easier. And every recipe is 100% gluten-free. The recipes are low-grain. We only use a little bit of rice or quinoa in the recipes depending on what phase you're following, of course. All the recipes are low carbohydrate, very low dairy, low sugar, and there are low FODMAP options included. The great news is that you can download it instantly and you can get cooking today. 
If you'd like to know more about the SIBO meal plans, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash SIBO hyphen meal hyphen plans or head to the show notes from today's episode and just click on the link there. I hope you enjoy the meal plans, guys. I know it's going to save you so much time, energy and effort and help you be compliant to your SIBO diet as you go through your treatment. Now let's get back to the show. And we've, we've touched on this on um, our previous um, discussions for the Healthy Gut podcast. And I know in our, um, uh, the episode, uh, I can't remember what number it was now. I think episode 35, perhaps I might, I might be wrong with that. Check the show notes, I'll have the right episode. Uh, but we talked about oral health and SIBO and gut health. And you did talk about chewing food well and be- because that is the beginning of the digestion process. And I think that can often be really overlooked in terms of a supporting function of SIBO and gut health in general. What people do is go, yeah, yeah, but they don't do it. (laughs) Of course they need to chew. And so that's why they need people like you to coach them and to also say, I know you're doing your thing and you're discovering things your own way, but trust that I know where you are. And you just need somebody to bounce it off of and be open to hey, just try it. Something that we've done in the SIBO coaching program recently was we talked about one of our exercises was slowing down how quickly we eat. And one of the exercises that I did early on was every single mouthful of food, I put my knife and fork down and I was not allowed to touch it. I had a rule with myself. I couldn't touch it until I had chewed and swallowed the food. And then I could pick the knife and fork back up and cut the next piece of food and eat it because I had to retrain myself to slow down because I had been such a speed eater. And that has made an enormous difference to my ability to just process the food. I can feel my system coping with the food a lot better than it used to. Um, And given that I had chronic constipation, now I'm all about, you know, being as supportive and loving and caring to my digestive tract as I can possibly be to support it and not return to that woeful state that I was once in. Um, Chronic constipation is common for methane dominant SIBO, although interestingly, and I think this is an important thing to point to make, it doesn't categorically mean it's the only symptom you have and I often hear from people saying oh I've got hydrogen dominant SIBO why do I have constipation well just because you have one or the other doesn't mean you will only get one type of symptom you won't get um, constipation or diarrhea from what I've seen from people and I think that that's important for the listeners to know Um, but chronic constipation can be prevalent well it is prevalent in the SIBO community can we talk about what how you support somebody in going to the toilet and the importance of getting somebody to open their bowels sure well again this can range from are they have they ever tried magnesium we might start with 100 to 200 milligrams all the way up to biofeedback and some people need a, a defecation study. They need to, I actually saw that at Cedars where they will put a balloon and it's it's looking to see, does your body know how to respond? Does it get the message that it's full and there? 
Do you know how to push? Is there enough pressure? Um, there's electrical, there's muscular, so there, there can be more to the story. Um, from that, we have to look at our spectrums to where are we in terms of, I also am listening to people, how long have you been on magnesium, vitamin C, etc.? What's the dose that you need? Where are you now? Do you need blank amount of X, right, of those things and some tea that has a stimulating aspect to it. So you can usually also look at the timeline and they've maybe been um, prescribed uh, something that is stimulating the movements. Again, I'm just not going to start naming off drugs, but that's, or an antidepressant is, is one of the aspects from serotonin angle. And so again, somebody has usually told me some part of their story for me to then either assess their serotonin epigenetic reasonings and malabsorption of amino acids, precursor to 5-HTP and serotonin. So as you're putting in all that protein, are you breaking that down into amino acids? That's a big piece because these free-floating proteins in our system is what our immune system doesn't like and will have a reaction to. So, um, yeah, so then you have that angle. I'll also look at what about, say, for example, in a female, what if they have endometriosis, so we might be using more castor oil packs and more topical, some massage. We might be, again, looking at um, not even maybe mental, emotional, because, again, some of this is painful, or when they're, it's around their cycle and we're going to have an increase in inflammatory markers. I would, We've looked at, in some cases, I was talking to somebody about seed cycling um, but again, we might, what was it that we came up with for them? It was more of this hormone cycling, okay? So I said, look, you don't necessarily need to be on this particular drug, this medication. It works brilliantly for them. And enzymatically in their genetics, I understand why. And what I mentioned earlier about the androgens and the bugs creating the androgens, the methane, I know in this person, that drug is fantastic for them, but they don't necessarily want to be on it all the time. And so I'm watching their cycle and saying, look, you know what, we might be able to pulse this similar to seed cycling to listen to your bacteria and watch how maybe when, when it's estrogen dominant in your cycle, right? So that's, that's a component because we have been able to very clearly see the gut function, i.e. constipated or not, right? I mean, I've had, there's very, very interesting correlations with women's cycles and all kinds of things I've heard that have happened even on the toilet where you just say, really, tell me, tell me about that from pushing, passing out. I mean, there's just all kinds of things that can happen that I think of more vascular pressure again. So it's like, what is the mechanism of your constipation? Not just tell me what to do for constipation. Dark. I think that's an important point. How does somebody find, who do they go to or how do they find out whether there are mechanical issues um, at play with their constipation? Unfortunately, this is the, the component of the diagnosis of exclusion that IBS is um, because, again, people who have had that type of workup at certain ages, it's, it's really kind of unnecessary. But generally... If they're, they've even had, usually there's right this whole algorithm for as far as when do you do a colonoscopy. 
Um, and, you know, it's an excellent question. I don't know when in like the motility centers algorithm they then refer to, I'm thinking of two of my patients that I've sent to Dr. Pimentel even specifically where they then decided it was time for them to seek out that rectal, you know, just look at further, um, not only, and, and there again is a sequence to how you look at how the bowel is communicating. And I, um, them being a motility center similar to the antrodiodomanometry, this is a rectal workup that can be done. And um, so that's one ang angle. I don't know, like I said, at what point somebody then says, hey doc, can you work me up for it? Because it's not often, I will say that, okay? Um, and then in some cases, I'm thinking of another case where the patient had what's called redundant colon. So they had an extra long colon. Um, and yeah, so I mean, sadly, in one case, there was a case where, and nobody could have ever predicted, but their intestine folded in on itself. It's kind of like a water weenie. And it cut off the intestines. So this person just had a sudden onset. It was just out of the blue. They don't look, they, there's nothing about this. It is incredibly rare and random. They also then, because of that finding, they saw all this stool, you know, they rush into the emergency room, they see all of this stool. And then that was interestingly what they found out. The reason why the intestine folded in back up on itself was the length of that colon. So I had to work a lot with that person. This person wanted to basically have an x-ray of their bowel once a week. I'm not, I'm sorry, but it's almost like I had to convince them. I said, look, you are function, you are eliminating stool, but it was that, is it all out? Is it all out type of a thing, okay? With understandable reason, you know, concerns for them, but it's, I'm also looking for the quality or the, you know, the texture, right? It's also should be this, I call it the call from nature. We should get the call from nature. We should go do business. And it's like, done. you know, like lights on, off, walk out the door. It's not a long, arduous process. And ideally, we're even getting woke up out of bed kind of with this like, oh, I got to get up out of bed to go open the back door. So, um, and those things, I can have people on no joke, 2,000 milligrams of magnesium, they're on, you know, vitamin C on top of it, two bags of smooth move tea, they're doing anything and everything, working all angles, and we can get them off of it. So ultimately, the system starts working properly and, and then they can go to the toilet on mm -hmm. their own. And this is a concern I have, I have my um, people that contact me have is they're worried that by using these supportive measures like magnesium and other things that they're going to somehow delay the repair of their system or perhaps it's just a Band-Aid, it's just masking um, a dysfunctional system and they're really worried that you know perhaps they shouldn't be taking it because they're worried that it's not ultimately helping. What's your view on that? Should, should, should the goal be to clear the bowel or should it be to get the system working naturally on its own without any support? Or maybe it's both. <laughs> it's both, right. I mean, it's kind of like sleep where I say, do whatever you have to do to get sleep, um, really. 
And so if that means we need to use medications, we use medications. Um, and, and then understand, I want to understand why we have to use medication and what medication's working. Because again, in sleep disturbance, there can be so many different reasons. And that's where genetic epigenetics come in for sure. Um, so yeah, that was my goal. I, I will come to you in the sense that I've been in all the phases. And then when you're there and you're cozy and you just, but this is my magnesium and this is my routine and it's just even, I don't know how it was even in my finances. I don't know. You, you see what I mean? And so when those things get lifted and they just don't have to be there, um, I can think of a gentleman right now that an extensive workup, I mean beyond, and it's so amazing for me to look at his follow-up and see it's because I keep it all running document and I looked for when just recently um this gentleman was taking three was taking Miralax three times a day down to within I'm so I'm going to say within six weeks okay we are down to then two times a week so we're looking at maybe three weeks I would say two to three weeks in between these appointments and um, now again, we found out the underlying reasoning, and it was something to do with his stomach. And so definitely he got a Heidelberg test. And it was just amazing for me to see. And so I was like watching his follow-up. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. On, we went from three times a day using Miralax to two times a week to now there's no Miralax. And there's no Miralax, there's no magnesium, there's no, there's no, and he's eating whatever he wants. It's, you know, he's like, my wife's thrilled. She's Greek. <laughs> and I can have, and he's like looking forward to 4th of July barbecue where I'm going, yeah, we're going to do whatever you want. Yeah. And that's where we all Maybe want to Maybe even get some to. beer. Yeah. <laughs> what about coffee enemas? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, of course, the Gerson technique and therapies that I am very res I respect, again, all the hard work and information that's there. And I'm looking at the concept of coffee enemas as it's stimulating the liver, and it's, it's about bile, in my opinion. So I'm all about bile. I'm about bile as far as it's in terms of methylation, as far as our stomach regulation, et cetera. So, of course, I understand, is it something that I recommend? No. Is it something that I would say do not do? No, not necessarily. I mean, I will get more specific into environmental tox toxins that can be in coffee. Again, just going to kind of talk about the fermented slash molded, you know. So that's just the only reason why I'm less inclined um, to, to, to put anything in there. Mm. It's interesting. And, uh, you know, I've heard from some people that say that they have great results with it. And, uh, and for others, eh, not, nothing major. Agreed. I would say I haven't heard anything detrimental. But again, when somebody does, oh, it's not hurting, then I'll do it all the time. That's not always the best case either. So we, sometimes we just need to pulse things to, to enhance versus take hold. One of the other things when we often look at the underlying reasons can be um, through nerve damage, through perhaps um, a food poisoning incident. And one of the things I often wonder is, you know, we've got the IBS check test um, here in the States. It's not available in Australia at this point in time. 
But how much time can pass from an, from an episode of food poisoning and then accuracy of the test? And you may or may not be able to answer that for me. But when I think about myself and I started to get food poisoning, uh, probably in my early 20s was my first, I remember being food poisoned from eggs at a hotel and being violently sick from them and never wanting to eat eggs ever again in my life because <laughs> it was just so awful. Um, you know, and that was... Uh, over 20 years ago, um, you know, how, how long can that sit in our system and still have an accurate um, test? Okay, so this is what's great. And I would refer even to those of you who probably have watched even the Global Symposium. that It was this last year that Dr. Pimentel highlighted this. They had a few cases actually that explained this very, very well. And so here's what I'll say, that they had a, an example of a case of we know this person had acute gastroenteritis. We happen to have tested them at the right time. Now they're again a research facility center. So I understand the costs, et cetera, involved in this, but let's just talk in terms of science. So this person knows that they have had a bacterial food poisoning and their immune system is saying, yes, I recognize cytolethal distending toxin and I am also molecularly mimicking and having an issue to vinculin. That's the way that I look at it. And so the fact of the matter is, is that as you watch that case, yes, they, uh, they see it, but it wasn't, quote, technically positive yet. However, as, and I believe the time frame was, and I don't know if this is standard, if this is in this individual, or if they're looking at this right now, I'm assuming they are, um, that as they, I think it was a week and then a month, they continued to test, okay? So again, folks, I'm talking about doing this multiple times, and the numbers continue to go up so that therefore the bot, she was then deemed, this patient was deemed positive. And we know that once they are, and again, Dr. Pimentel actually mentioned that this year's SIBO symposium where he says, look folks, I had to be really specific. Do you want to know how specific? Really specific to say this is check. I want everybody to hear that. They had to prove without a shadow of a 99.9% .9 doubt, and he showed his data. He's like, I couldn't go with 89. I couldn't go with nine. I had to show and give the numbers and the reference range that makes it a check mark versus an X. And so that's when I say to myself, depends on, yes, was it most recent or was it 20 years ago? Because what we know is that the body is five times more susceptible to another food poisoning or traveler's diarrhea. You may not have had the memorable hotel experience, but it could have been transiently, how many times do I post on my Facebook page all of the food recalls? It's cashews. It's almonds right now. It's very fancy, um, friendly treats that are out there and snacks. And people just don't realize that salmonella and E. coli and there are biofilms on these food processing plants. So of course, we always are trying to get back to nature and back to our own yard and creating our own food. But it isn't impossible and it's not just protein that people think they're going to get a food poisoning from, folks. It is raw fruits and vegetables. It is raw milk, not fermenting. I mean, how many jars of sauerkraut did I just 
funk the whatever over and just let my, I'm like, what was I eating? I have no idea. And there is not a facility that's you bioimming your fermented foods. Mm. And I'm sure that some of the listeners like me um, are probably, I mean, I think of all the times I've had food poisoning and gastro and it's, it's a significant number. And whenever I planned to go traveling, I would know I would be sick categorically I could put money on it no one would ever bet against me (laughs) because it was such a guaranteed thing but um, because you know once I'd been sick I just got sick and always violently sick when I went traveling and then I'd pick up the stomach bugs really easily and the stomach flu and everything Um, until recently until the last two years and that and that has really uh, virtually stopped um which is really good and I hope it doesn't come back. So you could be in that realm, right, of you could have had them positive and they say that they can remain elevated between five and ten years. So that zone where you were just hammered, right, you were susceptible, they go, yay, let's try this chick, right, versus saying, hey, it's not going to damage or, you know, cause any havoc over here. But that's the reason why, and even my colleagues, they'll say, oh, well, I don't run that test. Or then it's now, oh, you only run that in IBSD, which I get it. Again, there's, there's, we have to have um, consensus, et cetera. However, I'm looking for, is there a response? Is there an elevation? I can think of only two patients, because it stands out to me, where their vinculin was 0.002. And I can think of zero patients that have zero response to cytolethal distending toxin. So the reason why I do that is I'm a super nerd, as a lot of you listeners are too, but I'm saying in microbiome, it's getting into viruses and phages. It's, it's way more complicated. And so that's that, yeah. Mm. Another thing with regards to just the efficiency of the migrating motor complex um, as you know, as, as I think about the methane dominant people and the constipation and the difficulty going to the toilet and the slow motility, is um, I know that fasting is often touted as a great way to support the migrating motor complex to allow it or to encourage it to work. And my my thought is often, how long a fast should one do to get the benefits? I know we're often told to fast four to five hours between meals and 12 hours overnight, that that's ideal. Um, I know personally I feel great when I fast. I have two days a week when I just have dinner and I feel amazing from it. Um, But I often think, well, I see some people and I hear from people that are doing two, three, four-day fasts. I think there's a little bit of um, food phobia that's, going into that as much as there is about, you know, feeling good on a fast. Um, But do you see anything clinically with your patients around the benefits of fasting and the migrating motor complex and, and length of time of a fast? Well, here's my comment that I would make about this. And I think everyone will understand when it was this, as we've seen in just in life, I think that there's these mega trends. I can think of the fat free trend in the whatever years (laughs) and everything had to be fat free. So what did they replace stuff with to make things taste good? Right. So it's just always this like, what are we taking away or to replace something with, I guess is just where I'm coming from. So how specific I get is 
again, epigenetics, okay? So I'm going to say that it's in the methionine pathway, which is why I love this. When I saw it on this particular um, work from Dr. Ben Lynch's group, and I'm like, oh, look, that's speeding up this enzyme's function. There, it's, it's actually in a few places. And the reason why that it's on his um, pathway planner is based on the fact that there's evidence. So it's not going to be on the pathway planner unless there's evidence showing that. So that's how I've extrapolated from there. And it is in the methionine pathway. It has to do with the SAM, SAW, and homocysteine. That's one zone where fasting and starvation, they call it, is speeding up this enzyme's activity. And I think that's even what's helping or balancing out somebody having, oh, my homocysteine's fine, because homocysteine actually goes two directions. So that's one of those things where when somebody tells me they benefit from intermittent fasting or they have a food fear, but it's because it's appeasing X, Y, and Z, and then I'll get the details. So tell me and describe your pain now versus just sitting here and starving versus eating. That can be an interesting conversation because then I can get into more about it if it's very specific that's it again right okay so I just want to be able to identify that component and I I hear from people who are fasting who are bringing in a day or two of fasting in a week that they they really question the support of the migrating mochita complex because they often feel a bit more constipated well Thank you. That's what I'm saying in terms of the reason why we said to start spacing meals, folks, is because everybody said to eat every two hours. That was where I was going with the fat-free trend. Thank you, brain. <laughs> it's a long day. <laughs> so it's this, or like, like just even go carb, low carb, no carb, burba carb, eat five foods, what? No. Let's try and figure out some balance. And... Uh, like I've, I know for myself that now that I'm older and I've, I'm way more in tune with my body and I'm, I'm not the carb addict that I once was. I was very addicted to carbs and sugar um, and there was a psychological component to that as much as there was a physiological um, desire for that food. Um, but I feel really good now that I eat whole foods, real foods, Foods as nature intended, they look like the food as it was grown. It's not coming out of a packet 99.9% of the time. Um, you know, it's just really natural food. And so if I have a potato, then that's okay because it's a potato. My yes. body knows what yes. to do with thank it. thank you. Mm -hmm. um, but I find that for me personally, having breakfast, lunch and dinner and, and not having the snacks like I once did, I feel, I feel really good for that. But I'm also eating a much better quality food than I ever used to when I was younger because now it's real food and it's not full of crap and I think that's also a really important thing when we're recovering from any kind of condition and SIBO is a, a sign that our body is just not working properly then giving it a really good quality level of nutrition should be a really big priority for us to help us get well again. Agreed. And I, but I tell you, and I don't have to worry about spacing. I really try and reduce any rules because I don't want somebody looking at the clock going, oh my gosh, I'm going to pass out, but it's only been three and a whatever hours. I want to know that information. 
Because again, that sets a benchmark. Okay, you came from, you were brain influenced to eat every two hours, your trainer, your whoever, everybody's still talking about that. And yet if you can't do it, that doesn't pertain to you. You're not wrecking your migrating motor complex again. Like, please stop beating yourself up. Because then when you feel better, it happens naturally. When your blood sugar is not dysregulated, when you're not malnourished, when your neurotransmitters aren't all over the place, when your cortisol, on and on and on. And I think that's really valid um, because that I have seen has happened for me. I don't look at the clock now. I don't sit and go, oh, gosh, it's been four hours. I'm allowed to eat again. What I do instead is I now am tuned in. And so I go by the signals my body tells me. And I've stopped actually eating to the times a meal should happen. I eat when I'm hungry and I eat when I feel the need for food. And sometimes that can see me eating at really random times. But Mm -hmm. then I go, well, this is when my body needs this today. Exactly. And so if I have had a really filling breakfast and I don't need to eat again until 4.30, well, then that's the time I have something to eat again. And then I might not eat again for the day or I might have something light at 8 o'clock. But um, it's all about the ebb and flow of my body rather than being dictated that lunchtime must be 12 o'clock. Exactly. And it feels really good to Or that it's three now. meals a day. Or it's three meals a day. And I can't have an extra coffee because, uh-oh, I ate, mm, not me. That doesn't rule my life. I do what I want. Yeah. So it's been great chatting to you today, Dr. Melanie Keller, and really sort of diving into the methane um, SIBO world and and constipation. Do you have any parting words for the the methane uh, SIBOers that are listening to this podcast? Um, Any final tips or wisdom, words of wisdom that you'd like to share with them? I'm really reaching. I'm, I think it, what comes to me in terms of are the ones who are dealing with pain. Um, so if it's pain with evacuation or overall generalized pain, that please don't just stay on the, the merry-go-round of what you're doing. I know that that's not easy to even find the right person per se, but both you and I are available and there are other resources out there as well because that's just one thing that I don't like to see somebody in pain. I don't like to see someone hungry. I don't like to see them in pain and I don't like them not being able to sleep. So I kind of at least want to say that, you know, in terms of, and the other comment I thought of really quickly, and again, with professional courtesy to people when you mentioned people can self-treat. Well, doctors can also go, oh yeah, that's good for SIBO and give it to their, keep giving it to their patients. And they don't know. And they don't, again, with courtesy, but they don't really, they don't have time maybe to follow the patterns. They just hear that that is the antimicrobial and there's one very particular company and will not name the name, but that is happening very much so. And so everything in that product line should be used. Oh, you haven't used this and that, but, and then it's the combo. And I just say, what are you treating folks? And so I just don't want them to only rely on, or you go to a conference and it's everybody's now giving out this. If everybody's getting the same, now I'm going to sound like a hypocrite here, but that's because we saw the pattern. So you should see the improvement. The pain should go away if you're on the right treatment. The facilitation of your constipation should 
facilitate the pain reduction. So that's just at least when I'm trying to think of, because I think constipated folks can get put on the, oh, you're just constipated burner. And yet I really want to be able to hear and, or, you know, highlight and recognize those who are also in pain that feel they've gotten put on the burner, but they need to be heard about the pain component. I was sharing with some of my clients just this past week in our um, private Facebook group around a story that I had totally forgotten about. Um, Years ago, I had gone to see a new doctor, a new female doctor, and she was doing my kind of annual gynecological exams and she yelled at me, you know, mid uh, examination, oh, you are so constipated, you stupid girl. And, well, I didn't even know I was because that was my normal, going to the toilet once or twice a week. And to have your legs akimbo with a doctor <laughs> examining you and then yelling at you about being stupid for being constipated is a quite mortifying thing. And I really feel for the constipated peeps out there because I know exactly what it's like. Um, you're often not heard and you're told to just have more fibre or go and take a laxative. And it can be very frustrating because, um, you know, we can often really suffer in silence and it's not something that we talk about. So, um, you know, I hear you people. <laughs> I know yeah, the pain. They, they're the ones who will chase everything and they've tried everything and they'll try every combo and I just say but yeah and I think yeah finding finding searching out the practitioners that are experienced that are treating SIBO every week they are they have a wide variety of experience in SIBO and asking those questions you know are they treating um, methane dominant have SIBO? you had it yeah, have you had SIBO? <laughs> have you ever been constipated? Yeah, exactly. No joke. Um, finding someone that um, resonates with you is really important because they're part of your team and they're, they're you know, someone in your kit bag that will help you get well. And, um, and you need to believe in them and they, I think, need to believe in you as well. Yeah. If somebody would like to reach out to you, how can they contact you? So there's SIBOSolutionSingular.com. And um, yeah, there's our info at SIBOSolution.com goes directly to my office manager assistant that um, can get details on what information people are on. But the website is incredibly informative. And it's been just a pleasure to do a Healthy Gut podcast live recording here in LA. And thanks to our gorgeous guest, Jenna, for also coming and joining us, uh, Dr. Melanie Keller. It's been a pleasure once again having you on the Healthy Gut podcast. Yes, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed the show and Rebecca looks forward to returning next week with her voice back intact. If you'd like to get the show notes or any of the links mentioned in today's show, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash methane. Did you know that Rebecca loves hearing your feedback? Make sure you head to iTunes or the app you use to listen to the show to leave her a rating and review. If this episode was helpful to you, make sure you share it with others who have methane-dominant SIBO so they can learn more about it as well. You can follow The Healthy Gut on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest, Google+, and just look for The Healthy Gut. On next week's show, Rebecca is joined by Riley Wiminger to talk about what we can do when we become afraid of food, which is really common for people with SIBO. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Music
You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.